Hello and welcome to the Equity Book Club podcast here at EBC. We hope to encourage everyone to slow down, get smarter, and talk to each other. And what better way to do this than through reading a book every month and then discussing that reading experience with others. My name is Mark Hayes. I'm the facilitator for the original Equity Book Club, a virtual group of friends and associates who are just starting up with our reading and discussions. Our focus is always on books that address issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion, both in the past and in the present. Our selection this month has been the novel Bombingham by Anthony Grooms. Anthony Grooms grew up in Virginia, attended the College of William and Mary, and then earned his MFA from George Mason University. A collection of his verse called Ice Poems came out in 1988. His short story collection Trouble No More was published in 1995 with Bombingham following in 2001. His most recent novel, The Vain Conversation, was published in 2018. Grooms has twice received the Lillian Smith Prize for Fiction and has been a finalist for the Legacy Award from the Hurston Wright Foundation. He was also awarded a Fulbright Scholarship in 2006. He's held a number of teaching positions over the years and currently serves as Professor of Creative Writing and Director of the Professional Writing Program at Kennesaw State University. Now, before we get to our conversation, if you're out there listening and you'd like to start your own virtual or in-person equity book club, all you need to do is follow along on our website, our Twitter feed, or on this podcast. You can join the original club with me and everyone else, or you can form your own. Our website is equitybookclub.blogspot.com. Our Twitter feed is at bookequity, and you can write directly to us at equity.book.club at gmail.com. And if you found this podcast, you'll know that we're available on Stitcher, Spotify, iTunes, and so forth. Follow the podcast if you like, and feel free to leave us a review on iTunes. And now, my conversation with Anthony Grooms about his novel, Bombingham. So I'm just going to lean right into this first question. This is kind of related to our preliminary discussion, um, and it's a little bit of a two-parter. There was um, an editorial in the Washington Post uh, a while ago called uh, While Black People Suffer, White People Read Books, um, which is kind of what we're doing, actually, with this new project, the Equity Book Club. And I was mindful of that. Uh, in asking you to do this. And also, I'm well aware uh, over the years doing diversity work of the the ask of, of making someone be the only black person in the room with a lot of other, uh, with a lot of white people. Um, I'm wondering if we could just uh, talk about that or if you had some thoughts on that at the beginning of the conversation and then we can get on to our discussion of Bombingham. But I, I do think it's important to lean into that a little bit. So what are your thoughts on those two areas, the editorial um, and also, you know, what's being asked of you particularly? Well, first of all, Mark, I I thank you for asking me, and I appreciate very much that the Equity Book Club chose Bombingham as a book to read. Uh, I think that uh, uh, I read the article also, uh, and I thought that uh, some good points were made in the article. Uh, the um, but the point of the matter is uh, book clubs are a great way to learn and probably a uh, it's better to learn something than to go uh, ignorant into these uh, issues of diversity uh, and social change. 
the problem is that sometimes book clubs become also a way to excuse doing anything more than reading a book. And I think that um, uh, if action comes out of joining a book club and what action, uh, not necessarily marching in the street or uh, making any kind of uh, big gesture, but even small gestures uh, that might come out of uh, learning more about other people uh, would be great. And I should also say that black people join book clubs, too. Of course. <laughs> so it's not it's not uh, just um, uh, just a phenomenon of, of, of white people. Uh, and as far as being the only person in the room, I do think that it, well, it has to start someplace. Right. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I mean, I, I chuckled when you uh, first said that to me, and I thank you for looking out for my comfort. Uh, but uh, in my experience, uh, uh, having grown up in the, the uh, 60s and in high school during the 70s, uh, during the time of great social change and uh, around the civil rights movement, um, I often found myself the, the only black person in the room and sometimes the only black person within a radius of several miles. Uh, so uh, I'm used to this uh, phenomenon. However, I will say that uh, uh, that's not the goal. The goal, of course, is to have a, a conversation with critical mass uh, because one black person's experience can't represent the experiences of all black people, uh, just as one person's experience doesn't represent all experiences of any particular group. So it's great when you can have uh, uh, more voices than just one. But you have to start someplace, and I'm happy to, to be the person to start with. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about your experiences um, going to a, at least what I understand was a partially integrated school in the late 60s. I think you started in 1967. I mean, a lot of my information is from the Internet, but um, could you talk about that a little bit? Well, you know, the Internet is never wrong. So, <laughs> yeah, so uh, in fact, that is right. Uh, and partially integrated needs a little um, explanation. What it was, was a program created by the state of Virginia, sanctioned by the federal government, at least for some years. We saw this program in several southern states. It was a program to resist uh, the integration of schools. Uh, and it was called Freedom of Choice, which is an interesting uh, uh, name for it, giving it some cover as a, as, um, uh, a, a program that was giving people freedom and choice. Now, the fact of the matter is that there was very little choice. Um, in my county, Louisa County, Virginia, a county located uh, about, uh, well, it's, uh, uh, it backs up to Albemarle County, where the, the county seat is Charlottesville. So Charlottesville, of course, has been in the news uh, here in the past few years, uh, situated about uh, 100 miles or so uh, southwest of Washington, D.C., uh, so in, a, in an area where there are, uh, you know, very uh, learned and interesting people uh, and uh, uh, a lot of uh, history, you know, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison and so forth. Uh, but this, um, this county decided to maintain its separate uh, and segregated school systems, uh, but uh, uh, 
invite uh, parents to send their students, to send their children to either system. Uh, of course, no white parent would want to send their child to an inferior system because there was never any plan to improve the black schools. And, and I can tell you more about the, the black school I started off in and went to until fifth grade. Uh, but a few parents uh, led by uh, an activist uh, uh, school teacher whose uh, name was Alberta Guy Despot uh, decided that they would in fact risk uh, their children and send them to what we call white school. Uh, and uh, so that was my beginning as um, one of very few uh, black students in a majority white school where um, the welcome was varied. Um, some teachers weren't very happy with the situation. Some parents weren't. Uh, some parents uh, tried to form, uh, uh, in my county, um, what they called an academy. Uh, these academies, of course, if you know the Southern history, were formed in other counties across the South. Uh, and these maintained segregated uh, um, schools um, for a while. So that's how it began in, in sixth grade. What was the difference for you in terms of um, the schools that you started out in, in terms like elementary schools and then the high schools and perhaps the colleges also that you, not just colleges, but graduate school? Is there a contrast that, that strikes you still in terms of uh, not, not just the obvious ones, but perhaps the more subtle ones in being in a, one kind of school in elementary school and then another kind of school later on in life? Uh, well, you, you, you talk about the obvious uh, ones, and they were obvious, basically, that the black schools were under-resourced. But there are two things that I would, would want to mention about, um, about that experience. Uh, one is that the, there was sometimes, not always, but sometimes a counter-narrative presented in the black segregated schools. This is what I mean. I had a teacher in third and fourth grade whose name was Merman Johnson. Uh, when we studied Virginia history, we studied about happy slaves and, uh, uh, and, and this uh, 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 celebration, actually, of the Confederacy. Uh, but Mrs. Johnson, uh, who was mandated by the school board to teach that book, then would sit and tell us stories about Frederick Douglass uh, and uh, Maggie Walker, who was a, a seemingly a personal hero of hers. Maggie Walker was the first uh, woman to own a bank in the United States and an African-American woman from Richmond, Virginia. Uh, and uh, every morning we sang the, uh, the um, uh, Star Spangled Banner and we followed it with Lift Every Voice and, uh, and Sing. Uh, so there was, while on uh, one hand we were being told that, oh, you too can be president of the United States because that's the American ideal, we were also being given a lesson in black history and the struggle of black people. Uh, and um, uh, But interestingly, too, still told that you too can be uh, president of the United States. You just have to work at it twice as hard. And the other thing that strikes me uh, comes much later in life when I'm reading a book by Houston Deal, 
she was a teacher in uh, the Louisa County school system uh, in about 1970. A white woman from the Midwest who was uh, given the job and the distinction of being the first white teacher to be in a black segregated school. Now, this is the time that the school system is in transition from the freedom of choice model to the mandated integration model. They integrated the uh, junior high or middle school and the high school, but not the elementary school. So Houston Deal goes into the elementary school and, and she writes a memoir. And part of that memoir then talks about the history of education in my county. Uh, and interestingly enough, um, back in the 1940s, a University of Virginia education um, a PhD candidate also studied the history of education in my county. Uh, none of it all that great. But um, uh, one of the things that impressed me from her book, which is called Dream Not of Other Worlds, is how individuals made decisions about schooling that enforced and created the, the systemic racism. The, they, there were people who sat down and plotted how to disadvantage my family. Uh, and that has stuck with me over the years. The, you know, we talk about systemic racism. It's not a, a, um, a something that's organic. It is something that is created by people. Uh, when, when you uh, vote for a man who says segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever, then you get a system that is segregated. Uh, and so uh, uh, there, you know, when people sometimes think that uh, oh, well, this is systemic and it can't be changed. Well, it was created so it can be changed. And if I may say one other thing along this line of individual responsibility uh, is that when I made that transition to the freedom of choice uh, to a school called Louisa Elementary School, one which in some ways was absolutely amazing to me. For example, it had a library, small though it was, uh, the Fern Cliff Elementary School, the black school I came from, uh, did not have cafeteria library, nor did it have a classroom for every grade. And it was a new school, so it was then constructed to be inadequate. Uh, but at Louisa um, Elementary School, of course, I got uh, I got picked on. Mm. I would often come in with coming <laughs> from the bus. I was teasing my sister about this, who also accompanied me on this journey. Uh, uh, would always manage to get her seated in the front of the bus, but sometimes I was closer to the middle of the bus, uh, well within range of spitballs, uh, and uh, trying to read because no one would talk to me. Uh, but um, got uh, you know would come in and have to wipe the spit out of my hair and and so forth. Uh, but uh, eventually, this knowledge got to the principal, who was uh, a man named Mr. Hoover. And uh, he said, you're a student of my school and nobody is going to do that to you. And he's a, he's a white man who stood up for me and he put an end to that bullying on the bus. Uh, so uh, I've always thought that um, individuals can make a big difference uh, in these, uh, these six situations. It's not, it's not just an organic thing that people can't 
uh, oppose or can't do anything about. I love hearing stories. I think, you know, as, as an English teacher uh, and as a history teacher, there, there's a way that finding stories makes things understandable in a way that other disciplines can't, whether it's science or math or that sort of thing. So I'm, I'm curious as to how you, we can move to Bombingham now. I'm curious as to how you found your way into the novel. How did you find the, the stories that eventually made up the novel? Well, the, these, of course, are stories of my coming of age in a way, in that I came of age during the Civil Rights Movement and the Vietnam War. Those are the big uh, uh, social events of, uh, of my youth. Uh, specifically, Birmingham comes into the picture because uh, having finished my graduate studies at George Mason University, I got probably the only um, temporary teaching job in the country. Uh, I'm ex exaggerating a little bit, uh, but, but it felt that way. Uh, and it was in Macon, Georgia. So I moved to Macon and I had a friend in Atlanta and started to visit in Atlanta. And my friend introduced me to uh, my wife, who uh, who was on an interesting journey, too. She had been all the way to Boston and was working her way back down the coast towards Birmingham, which was her home. So we met in Atlanta and, uh, and eventually married. And so I married into her extended family, which is based in uh, both Montgomery and Birmingham, two central places in the civil rights movement. And I started to hear lots and lots of stories about um, those times, and uh, and they were, they were told as um, uh, really just uh, in a in a rough way gossip about people. They weren't they weren't given out as history lessons, but just uh, descriptions and gossip of people uh, uh, about people who uh, were either involved or more likely who were claiming to have been involved in the civil rights movement uh, much later. Uh, and hearing these stories and being a trained creative writer, I began then to, uh, to formulate um, short stories first and then uh, ventured off into the uh, Birmingham, the novel, which went, interestingly for me, very, very quickly. Uh, I'm I am a very slow writer, it seems, and uh, this um, uh, this book came together fairly quickly. In rereading it, I I was surprised again to find that the novel begins in Vietnam. It's sort of framed with uh, Walter, who was our sort of narrator. He's he's a soldier in Vietnam, and I think I think a lot about someone who someone who sort of reached adulthood in the late '60s, early '70s. I think a lot about Muhammad Ali, you know, um, and saying, you know, his conscience won't let him shoot his brother uh, and his opposition to the war. I think about in the novel, the presence of black veterans. Could you talk about why you, f you framed this book with a sort of Vietnam story as well as, you know, a number of other threads? The, the, for me, the process of, of writing uh, a story or a novel is, is layered, so you get a you get a sketch, and then you you begin to build on it. At the end of the first draft uh, of the of Birmingham, the characters were 
in Birmingham, Alabama, and I'm wondering how to end it. And I'm thinking, well, what would be the the natural ending here for this character? Uh, and then thinking about his age and and the uh, state of mind he was in at the time. And I thought, well, well, he would probably uh, go into the army. Uh, he would probably go into the, the Vietnam War. Mm. And this is what I grew up with, too. I mean, I thought that my my life would take me first to the army and then to the Vietnam War. Growing up in rural Virginia, I really didn't know much else. Mm. Uh, but, um, but then when I started to explore the Vietnam War aspect of the novel, I realized that there is a strong connection between the morality of the war and also some of the um, the protests against the war, uh, as well as the economic structure. Remember that Johnson had a um, Lyndon B. Johnson had a um, a an anti-poverty program. But if you go to war, that money goes to the military, not to poor people. Uh, so there are all of these ways in which. Uh, Vietnam and the civil rights movement connect. And Martin Luther King, of course, is at the center of that with his famous uh, uh, speech against the Vietnam War. And so it, it just started to make sense that uh, the, the book would have that, uh, that, that double, double approach. Um, uh, also, it, it makes sense narratively to me because... Uh, Walter is thrown off his moral track, uh, and uh, and when we meet him in Vietnam, he is not he's not the guy we want to be around, uh, and so he has to work his way back to that through the novel. Birmingham really is, uh, in some ways, a, a stepping point for the other novels I've written because they, I tend to write about social changes. And I also tend to involve veterans of various wars. Uh, and um, so some of those themes that we see in um, Birmingham continue into uh, other works. Walter's such a sweet boy when we see him in his life in Birmingham. I'm wondering if you could give us a little bit of a sort of capsule um, description of the the heart sort of the heart of the novel in a lot of ways those years in early in the early 1960s in Birmingham who's Walter and what's his life like well Walter is uh, a middle class black child in the in, in the 60s living in uh, a well established black neighborhood in Birmingham Alabama called Titusville uh, he's um, uh, the uh, the son of a school teacher, uh, and his mother has a clerical job, uh, so not not doing too poorly. Um, he's um, uh, very much a, a, a typical kid. Uh, he and his friend are interested in science. Uh, this is the time of the uh, Gemini and Apollo program, so uh, he's he's interested. As I think. Every kid in America was then in uh, going to space, going to the moon, because that's what uh, John F. Kennedy said we were going to do in that decade. Um, so in so many ways, uh, he is a very normal child. But there is, of course, the overlay of Jim Crow. 
that is, uh, and the legacy of uh, slavery and Jim Crow that impinges upon the lives of black people uh, in Birmingham and elsewhere. The, the, the city itself is in uh, um, a, um, res a mode of resistance against integration. It's closed down its parks, for example, to resist uh, integration. But there's also a family life within that. And his mother becomes ill. Uh, she, um, uh, well, she claims to have faith. It's absolute faith, but uh, I think there's some question as to the efficacy of her faith and and her father and his father uh, is uh, uh, an alcoholic. So uh, uh, we have uh, that tension too. Why is his father an alcoholic? It, in part, it has to do with his failures uh, to achieve uh, in life. So uh, the way I look at it is that it is uh, first a family drama. Uh, but it's a family drama, like all family dramas. When you think about our family dramas today, they're always set in a context of social something or the other, change, upheaval, uh, complacency. And sort of adding to the historical framing of the, of the novel, uh, Walter's named after, I believe it's his grandfather, right? Walter Lee? Yes. That's, there's the, the, you know, I find it, a very just a very impressive set piece chapter 12 the story of walter lee which i, I assume goes back to like the 1930s or so uh, I, I must say it's been 20 years since i dealt <laughs> with, the, with the material uh so i don't have uh, a reference for you but walter lee's story is rendered from an actual historical event that occurred in birmingham in which a man was falsely accused of uh, murder, the establishment knew he hadn't murdered, uh, and yet uh, he was punished simply because it was a white woman, a prominent white woman, who spoke against him. There's this grounding of so much of this book in real places, real events. Um, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. appears in the book. You have Bull Connor. I assume the geography of these neighborhoods in Birmingham is very carefully worked out. And as, as I was working my way through the book, of course, Birmingham is a nickname for the city. And, and for those who, who know a little bit about the history of the country, there's that bombing of the 16th Street Church. And, you know, Walter has this younger sister, Josie, who <laughs> who's of seems to me to be of the age that in the fictionalization, right, of this the history of the city, there's this kind of dread hanging over the book as you're reading along and you're seeing Josie and Walter kind of go to these training events at the, at the churches and so forth. Is there a version of the book where, where Josie is caught in that tragic event is, or was, I, I'm trying to, I'm trying to express my anxiety as the book was going along and you know how it novels are, you get attached to characters. Was was that um, I don't want to say by design, but did that occur to you as you're kind of constructing the story, the possibility of creating that effect for the reader? We're all worrying about what what's going to happen to Josie. Uh, no, that was not my intention. <laughs> um, I uh, I did have an intention not to write extensively about the church bombing. 
in large part because I thought that it had been explored a lot, although there's a great deal of mythology around it. Uh, we talk about four little girls. We forget that there was a fifth girl who was nearly killed. We forget that there were 20 other people who were injured. We forget that there were two boys who were killed with what you might call the ripple effect of violence from that uh, church bombing. Uh, uh, and even in Spike Lee's uh, movie about the church bombing, we, we don't talk about the boys, for example. Uh, so uh, I, I didn't want to explore that, although my editors did not help me because on the cover of the book, of course, they talk about the church bombing. And when I protested, uh, I was told, well, that's what people will know. It's, you know that's the hook. Yeah. Uh, so... Uh, uh, I wanted really to expand on the Birmingham experience uh, uh, and its history beyond simply the church bombing uh, and to note that uh, there were those uh, children's marches. I think that people know about them, uh, but uh, that uh, other children were killed on that same day. Uh, and you know, just to just to give a fuller picture of of what that that uh, story is like, and I must say too, in, in one of the uh, books, it's a it's a middle grades book. I won't name it, but it's a book that um, introduces um, the civil rights movement in Birmingham to a lot of young kids. Uh, it does not get the geography of Birmingham right, uh, but more importantly, it does not get the spirit of Birmingham right. Uh, in that uh, at the end of that book, you have uh, a uh, child who's absolutely traumatized with fear. And that wasn't so much the case in Birmingham. Of course, there was a lot of fear because uh, people had been living fearful lives all along. But there was also this sense of resistance, of determination. Uh, when children climbed over the uh, and these were teenagers climbing over the fence at Yulman High School uh, to join the protests. Uh, that wasn't because they were traumatized by fear. It was just the opposite. They were you know, sick and tired, as uh, uh, Mary Lou uh, Hammer said, sick and, uh, sick, sick and tired of being tired, mm -hmm. being sick and tired. There are two extended conversations in different parts of the book. I don't know if you are on different social media, but one of the things, of course, that's going on now um, is when people get into these tense encounters, you know, everyone pulls out their phones and these conversations play out. And I think there's even a, a hashtag now for some of these conversations called Karen's Gone Wild, right? So sometimes they're between, you know, average average folks and sometimes they're between innocent people and police. But I'm thinking about the, the conversation that that Walter has with the doctor in the, in the park. And then that extremely anxious conversation that Walter's father has, um, at the fairgrounds. I just, I, I just thought those were, those were extremely well done. How, how did, how did the writing of those conversations feel to you? And did you draw on things, the stories that we often hear about these kinds of encounters? Uh, the the first one you mentioned, the one with the doctor, as I recall, yeah. uh, that was uh, a very easy conversation to write. It was more or less got it right in the first draft, mm. or it felt right in the first draft. And 
I'm not sure exactly what I was drawing on. It, it might have actually been some of the experiences that my mother talked about, mm-hmm. not from her childhood, but just uh, uh, the, the power difference uh, between, uh, in this case, a professional white person and, uh, and, and in, in the case of my book, a child, but I'm thinking of my mother as a non-professional black person, the, the, the way that uh, uh, one can talk to the other uh, and scold the other. Uh, so, uh, but that went uh, pretty quickly. The one I really struggled with was the one between the, the guard and the father. And there were a couple of things I was thinking about. One is that they're both veterans. Mm-hmm. Uh, so being veterans could have been a way for them to connect. But part of the mythology of white supremacy is that uh, blacks have never contributed to the protection of the country, that we've never been veterans, of, of that we've never uh, been in the wars, that we don't deserve a part of the country because we've never fought for it. So that has to be countered in a sense. And of course, in that case, the, the guard, the father, because he wants his child, because he will do what he needs to do to get his child, uh, he gives up on that argument. Um, then the other part of it uh, is that here's a, a confused white man who has his own set of problems. Mm-hmm. So he, you know, he's he's dealing with the big social upheaval uh, in which he now is keeping a father apart from his daughter, but he's also worried about what's going on in his own household. Uh, so, uh, so that plays in. And what I was really trying to do to the best of my ability was not to create a stereotypical Southern police officer. Uh, how successful, I don't know, uh, but... Um, but that's that was the goal. I, I didn't want him to come off as uh, Andy Griffin <laughs> or some other kind of typical racist Southern sheriff. I loved the portrait of Walter's family and his extended family and the neighbors. I, I would imagine in, in the writing of a novel, there's always a kind of cost-benefit analysis of, you know, the more characters you add, the more work you have to invest in making them compelling. Why was it, I mean, I think you did a great job with that. What, why was it so important to show this, you know, not just the extended family who kind of show up as the cavalry, but also the the neighbors and so forth dropping in? I I think the reason is that it's realistic. Uh, We, we grow up in neighborhoods and we grow up with extended family. At least that was my uh, experience. Of course, a novel can be an unrealistic construction, uh, but for me, uh, in this novel, it felt natural that uh, that neighbors and extended family should be there. And I would say that was particularly true of a neighborhood like Titusville and probably most neighborhoods in the 50s and 60s, uh, is that people knew each other. Uh, and, you know, uh, you, you uh, as a child, you could go any place and, and it was known if, if, the, if someone didn't know your name, knew your parents. Uh, so uh, it's hard to get away with stuff. Um, and, uh, and in my 
particular case, I grew up near extended family, near grandparents and uncles and aunts. Um, uh, my wife uh, uh, had a similar experience, actually, although her her family had transplanted from Montgomery to Birmingham. Uh, so this just seems natural to me that uh, that there, 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 there is a community that's uh, inserted into the family. Do you feel that a lot of that sense of community, extended family, uh, neighborhood has been eroded in the past, you know, 40, 50 years? I think it's changed. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure about, about eroded, um, but it certainly has changed because we are more mobile. We are, uh, there are more things to do. You connect very differently with people than you did back then when you had the 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 telephone that you actually had to dial mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, instead of push a button and instantly get connected and and facetiming and all of those myriad ways we can get connected now it's interesting to me to watch my teenage son who has friends all over the country people he's never met we can go to a place that we know he's never been to and you'll say I, I want to go out and meet my friend, and we'll say, well, who is that? Oh, well, I've never met her in person, but uh, we have been uh, Instagram friends for a long time or something yeah. of that nature. Yeah. Uh, so I think the, the, the shape of uh, or the, the, uh, what makes up the family or the notion of family or extended family might have changed, but not, but not really the need for this uh, extended family. I think about where I live now in Atlanta, and I do have this strong sense of friends who act as family. But I'm also very much in touch with my extended family, although they are 10 hours away. So let's talk about Walter's father and this notion of being a, a person of science or a scientist, and this is kind of what Walter aspires to, too, because there's this, there's this sort of tension in the book between, uh, and maybe I'm overreading it, uh, which is my tendency probably, but um, Walter's father is a man of science and then that tension that he feels with his his spouse as a as a person of faith. Walter's trying to figure out how to navigate in the world. He's got these kind of two two poles, I suppose, to steer by. Could you talk about that dynamic, particularly particularly this idea of scientists in the context of a way to navigate this social world that Walter's in? You know, again, I said when I when I construct a novel, it comes in layers, and mm -hmm. towards the end of uh, several drafts, this idea of uh, Clara and Carl uh, being opposite poles uh, uh, developed, uh, so that um, Clara is blindly uh, invested in her religious faith. Uh, whereas uh, Carl has rejected that, but uh, is just as equally blinded uh, by w what he considers to be the scientific approach. Uh, and neither is uh, effective. Uh, uh, the children eventually find a way uh, through the civil rights movement that is more of a faith in action uh, concept where they are uh, have some faith, uh, but uh, can act upon it and put that faith into action. Uh, whereas um, Clara simply is waiting for God to heal her 
we're not quite sure what uh, Carl wants because uh, uh, he has uh, dropped out of the family and he has become uh, an alcoholic. Uh, but that, that uh, tension is something that I have uh, dealt with uh, uh, personally, uh, not so much with my parents, though my mother was quite religious and my father was what she called a form and fashion Baptist. Uh, <laughs> Meaning that for him, I think religion has always been a bit more of a, a, a social endeavor rather than uh, strictly a spiritual endeavor. And that's not to say that he isn't spiritual. But from my father, I learned a lot about nature. He was one who loved to hike. Uh, he loved, uh, and he, he was by trade a refrigeration mechanic. But I think his great dream was to be a farmer. But nonetheless, that uh, pull between uh, a, a very prescriptive version of religion and and nature or science was something that I grew up with. I, of course, wanted to go the way of science, though I did uh, dip my toe into uh, religion uh, for uh, a good number of years and then pulled my toe out. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the thinking that was going on there. You know, there's no clear cut. Uh, way I think that people can get through their lives, uh, but I do think at least for that family, the the parents are both at uh, equally in ineffectual places. I'm wondering, as I think about novels and as I teach novels over uh, these many years and read all these novels from different places and times, there's always this, you know, the need for plots to kind of resolve themselves there's you know there's kind of the romantic plot there's a realistic plot there's optimism there's pessimism there's cynicism and i'm i'm curious to as you worked your when you worked your way through the drafts of this novel and sort of got towards the end what what did you what what was your goal or what were you happy with ultimately in terms of maybe not a sense of resolution but just a, a note on which to stop I'm thinking of the, the the image and the last few lines of the book. They just seem to me to shade towards maybe not the hopeful, <laughs> but at least like a note of persistence. Does that make any sense to you what I'm saying? It makes perfect sense to me. <laughs> and it's, uh, I'm, I'm glad you said there was a note towards persistence. Uh, the, the very first review I got on the book ended by saying this is a book about the destruction of hope. <laughs> and, and my heart fell to my knees, and, and I, I, I um, uh, one th one thought that went through because this is the phase I was in at the in terms of publication was, well, there goes all the book sales. <laughs> you know? And then I talked to my agent, who cheered me up a bit, um, but um, but I never saw it as uh, quite so pessimistic as that. Um, the what I was hoping to emphasize is that the, the father and son are, are in a position where they are almost standing. You know, we, we always talk about take a stand. Uh, you know, I'm, what, what do you stand for? So they are, they're, they're coming up. Their knees are still bent, but they're, they're, they're beginning to make a stand. I, I also think that uh, Walter whether it's a physical letter or whether it's a draft in his head, is coming around to understanding something about his own morality and what uh, what he needs to do in life. 
so I see it as a um, essentially a, a hopeful ending that I don't think that there's any magic in the world that people uh, have to struggle for what we get, you struggle for your own happiness, uh, you struggle to make change. So, uh, so there, it can't end with everything suddenly coming up daisies. Uh, not in my, not in my realistic world, at least. was my talk with Anthony Grooms. If you're out there listening and you'd like to start your own virtual or in-person equity book club, all you need to do is follow along on our website, our Twitter feed, or the podcast. You can join the original club with me and everyone else, or you can form your own. Thank you so much for listening to the Equity Book Club podcast. I'm Mark, and I'll see you when I see you. (laughs) 